Welcome to the Gospel Ministry of Exchange Church. Thank you for connecting with us for our Bible talk today, and please feel free to share these talks with others as well. It's our desire to connect people to Jesus and grow people in Jesus. To find out more about us, please visit our website, www.exchangechurch.org.au. We have been uh, speaking through the first book of Samuel over the last few weeks and a couple of little interruptions with the floods the other week, but uh, we got back to it last week and for about week four or week five. So if there's any talks you've missed out on, you can go back to our YouTube channel and uh, you can catch up there on some of those talks. But today we're going to move uh, into 1 Samuel 12. But before we get there, uh, at the start of each year in the USA, they have what is called the State of the Union Address. Who's ever watched that or knows about that? A few hands have gone up. They have what is called the State of the Union Address. And what actually is there is the President speaks to both houses of government there in the US and his address is televised right across the country at the same time. So it's a very sort of momentous occasion each year where the President gets up and delivers this address for the country, uh, where the President gives an assessment of where the nation's at at that particular time and then talks about the uh, the path going forward and how that will look for them. Now, unfortunately, that's been very heavily politicised over the last few years, but prior to that, probably 10 and 20 years ago, it was a very significant occasion when they got up and gave this state of the Union address. Well, today, in a watershed moment here for Israel, Samuel's going to do the same thing for us as we come into Samuel chapter 12. Uh, Samuel will spell out clearly what is the spiritual climate for Israel At this particular time, it will be really like a State of the Union address for the nation of Israel. So if you've got your Bibles, please go to Samuel chapter 1, 1 Samuel, I got that mucked up last week too, didn't I? 1 Samuel chapter 12, and uh, we are going to follow on from where Esther so read uh, well for us before, verses 12 through to 25. So 1 Samuel chapter 12, and we're going to read from verse 12. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king." So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. 
Moreover, as for me, far be it from that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Father, we thank you that we can come now uh, to this element of our service of worshipping you by opening up your word. We ask, Holy Spirit, please shed light onto this word now, illuminate our hearts and our minds as we see what is happening here with the nation of Israel and as Samuel addresses them here in this very poignant occasion. Now, Father, we ask and pray for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this chapter is a very much a turning point for Samuel. He goes from being the judge and the leader of Israel in a very spiritual sense, under the kingship of God, to now take a lower position or a lower profile position here uh, amongst the nation of Israel at this particular time. Hence, you might see in your Bible there, it might say... Um, Samuel's farewell address. Well, you will see him another two or three more times in this chapter, but he takes a lesser position in the nation of Israel this time. He actually goes on to be like a spiritual advisor for uh, King Saul. Okay, um, going on from that though, the previous chapters, we see in chapters 9 and 10 that Saul had been anointed as the king of Israel. We spoke a little bit about that last week. And then chapter 11, which we all asked you to read prior to today as well, helping us give context here for what's happening in chapter 12. Uh, Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, has risen up to oppress Israel and to come and actually give them a hard time and really just dominate and uh, squash their country. But it's here where we see Saul has been anointed as king that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Saul and with great conviction he rises up and calls all of this nation of Israel to come with him now to actually come and fight against Nahash, the king of the Ammonites. And the Lord gives a mighty, mighty victory that day to Israel as they rout the Ammonites, the uh, neighbouring country, which is next door to them. With that victory in mind, fresh as as has just happened, Samuel now calls the nation to Gilgal, uh, which is a significant place for them. This is the first place that they camped as they crossed over the Jordan River, coming into the promised land that God had given to them. And Samuel here calls them to Gilgal to give them a state of the nation or the state of the union address. Like, here's where we spiritually are before the Lord at this particular point in time as a nation. He's bringing them to do that. And he's going to do this here from the context as he calls them together. He wants to renew the kingdom of God in their hearts and their minds again, trying to get them to refocus on what is central in their lives as the nation of Israel. Uh, Here's the direction we're going to travel in today, then as we think about that now, that sort of background context in place. uh, Here it is, God is deadly serious about sin. Deadly serious about sin, but at the very same time, God is also lovingly gracious to forgive and to restore. Deadly serious about sin, but also lovingly gracious to forgive and restore. Let's jump into it now, and uh, let's open up chapter 12 and uh, see that for ourselves. Okay, so we find Israel here, previous, rejoicing over their victory of Nahash, and they're even making sacrifices like peace offerings to God at the end, at the end of chapter 11. They're actually rejoicing in this moment of victory they've found for the very first time for a long time. But Samuel's about to give them a very different story in the light of this rejoicing and the light of where they are at that particular moment. 
Samuel gathers them together for this state of the nation address. And what he does here in verses 6 to 11 of chapter 12, he sort of recounts Israel's history for them to begin to build to this understanding of where they are now. In verse 7, he actually calls them to attention. He says, listen, listen to what I've got to say. He wants to get their attention so they can clearly hear what God wants to say through Samuel at this particular time. In verse 8, as he's thinking about the history of Israel, he says, you know, Israel, you were once in Egypt, but you were oppressed there by the Egyptians, and you cried out to God because of this oppression. You cried out that God would come and save you from the Egyptians. And God heard your cry, and God raised up Moses, and he came and delivered you from the Egyptians. Through God's hand working in Moses' life, he brought you into the land of Canaan where you are today. And then he goes on to verse 9, he talks about this, Israel again, as as they're settled into the land of Canaan, they slide back into apathy and they slide back into ease, forgetting about the Lord who had actually rescued them there from Egypt and brought them into this promised land. They forgot about who the Lord was and the great rescue that he had done for them. And now they're oppressed by the Philistines, these neighbouring countries nearby. And in verse 10, Again, as this has happened, they confess their sin of apathy and ease and turning away from the Lord and actually growing cold before him and serving the false gods of the land. And they cry out for deliverance again. Lord, would you please deliver us from the enemy? And we see that here in verse 10. Let's read that together. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we've forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, but now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. God responds in that prayer, as Samuel would go on to say. We see through the book of Judges, this happens a number of times. And God raises up people like Jeroboam, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel to save them from the enemy and from their falling away from the Lord. What we see there between these two groups is a repeated pattern of what's taking place. Israel walks with the Lord, then they get comfortable, they get apathetic, they actually grow cold towards the Lord as they grow in this place of ease and this place of comfort. And then what happens is God allows the enemies to come into the nation, begin to oppress Israel. Israel then cries out, we need to be rescued. We've turned away from the Lord. Lord, would you please come and save us? And then God responds to their cries of repentance and faith by delivering them, by raising up many saviors, as it were, to come and lead that land and that nation back into safety once again. That happens up to verse 11. But then something different takes place in verse 12, which is where Samuel wants to highlight this, nation, this country with. In verse, Samuel says that Nahash now comes against you and oppresses you. But this time, but this time, you don't cry out to the Lord for deliverance. You don't cry to the Lord acknowledging your sin and asking now for rescue. You didn't do that. This time you have cried out and you said, we need a king. Please provide us with a king like all the other nations around you. So Samuel's basically saying you've left God out of the picture and you've actually called for a king. What Samuel's implying here just in this little verse is this is a terrible sin before the Lord in rejecting God as your king and calling for your own king. On every other occasion you did call out to the Lord. But not this time. You've actually won a king. Have a look with me in verse 12. We'll read it together as Samuel says this. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us. 
when the Lord your God was your king. We don't want God. We want another king, just like all the nations around about us. We don't want God to be our king. We want our own king. That's what we want. Now, I'm not going to focus so much today on this rebelling uh, from God. We're going to get to another side of it in a minute, but let's just put a little bit of detail here with it. Israel doesn't get it. When we turn away from the Lord, our lives become a train wreck. Sometimes we can put a really good front on, but the train wreck's all behind the scenes that other people can't see. Sometimes our lives are imploding in all sorts of ways behind the scenes. We fail to recognise God as his rightful place in the universe as our sovereign creator and our sovereign Lord. And then we experience all manner of brokenness in our lives because of this rejection. And Israel, at this point, still doesn't see that. Samuel now is beginning to show them this disastrous road that you are beginning to embark upon. Rejecting God as your king and just wanting your own king to suit your own desires. Yes, God has given you a king, a king of your own choice, a king of your own liking, but you still haven't seen the weight of the sin that this is, that you've chosen this king and rejected God. So Samuel says, I'm going to do something here. I'm going to ask God to do something totally out of the ordinary here to show you the weight of your sin. So you actually begin to see it because up to this point, you haven't seen it. It hasn't clicked. And verse 17, we see what happens. Have a look at verse 17 with me. Samuel says, is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. Now the extraordinary thing here is wheat harvest is a dry time of the year in Israel. It just doesn't rain at that time of the year. Not like we've had over the last few weeks. We've had lots of rain. Israel, it's just dry at that time of the year. It's unheard of. But in verse 18, God sends and visits Israel with cracking thunder and a downpour of rain all over their wheat crops. It just dumps everywhere. God brings that rain and he drops it right there. What is God doing? God is showing his divine displeasure that they've rejected him. A very visible evidence here of God's divine displeasure in what they've done. Let's not miss the point here that what Samuel's trying to communicate to Israel and what God's also trying to communicate to us as well. God is deadly serious about sin breaking into his world through fallen human beings who sin against God. Deadly serious about that. This is not small, it's deadly serious. And this thunder, this rain, is barely a whisper of God's ultimate divine justice towards sin. It is barely an echo of what ultimately will take place in the Lord's justice. You see, here's an issue even today with some Christians, some believers... We actually lose sight of God's holy character and his right, righteous anger towards sin. We live really loose, carefree lives. We just don't have a big picture of who God is and his holiness. 
Sometimes we just get this picture that God is like the grandfather sitting on the rocking chair handing out lollies to all of his kids. And we lose sight of the holy God who takes sin as deadly serious. And we live loose, carefree lives, not really caring about what we watch or what we do, what we say, how we act. It's really loose. Well, see, this is how Israel sees God. They're not really taking him seriously at all. Sin is deadly serious before a holy God. Now, praise God that he gave Israel at that time a tiny glimpse of his justice. A tiny glimpse of his justice. Because in that we actually see a right response come from the nation of Israel when they get this fresh understanding of who God is. Have a look in verse 19 for this response from them. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. Something's dawned upon them. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. I think there's a change of heart now in the nation of Israel. With a repentant heart, it's dawned on them. It's, it's finally begun to open up that God is deadly serious about sin. And in a sense, in that moment, they understand that they don't even deserve to take one more breath of God's good air. They are fearing for their lives, pray that we may not die. They're they're beginning to understand it's by sheer grace alone that they are able to take that next breath. It's beginning to dawn upon them now as they see this taking place. But here's what's astounding. Look at Samuel's response to their cry in, in the next verse, verse 20. He says this, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Do not be afraid. Now, you could sit there and say, Samuel, what do you mean, do not be afraid? I know you're pretty old, Samuel, and maybe you didn't have your hearing aids in just a few minutes ago. Didn't you hear that cracking thunder? Didn't you feel the ground shaking beneath our feet? Can't you see the rain is pouring down around about us? And you... Don't be afraid. I'm not sure you got it, Samuel. How can Samuel here say, don't be afraid, when God's just visibly shown his divine displeasure in the moment? Samuel knows who the Lord is. Not only is God deadly serious about sin, But he's also filled with loving grace to forgive and restore broken, sinful people. Look in verse 22 there as we see this. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Now that verse should actually leap off the page when we see that. That verse is like medicine for a broken and sin-sick soul when you actually begin to see what Samuel's saying there. It's like holding out a cup of water for somebody who's dry and parched, lying at death's door, gasping for air. We hold out this cup of water in verse 22 and we say, drink this, drink this. For his great namesake, Because of God's loving, merciful character, what will the Lord not do? He will not forsake his people. 
He will not abandon his people. He doesn't cast off his people. He doesn't throw us away like we throw garbage into the garbage can. The Lord doesn't do that. You may have been abandoned by others in life. Maybe even in your own family you've been abandoned where they treat you like you're not even existing in this world. Maybe that's your experience in life here. But the Lord doesn't work that way. He doesn't abandon. He doesn't cast off. He doesn't forsake. There's only one way that we can get separated, as it were, from the Lord, and that is through our own willful rejection of who he is and his lordship over our lives. It's our sin that separates us from God. That can happen. But even here, with Israel, guilty of great sin, sinning so badly against God, he holds out a word here of grace. He holds out a word here of forgiveness and for restoration in the heat of this moment, in the challenge of this time. Now think about them for the moment. Can you imagine as they experience their God's displeasure over them, that, that visible demonstration of that, can you imagine the guilt and the shame beginning to pile up as it were in their own minds, thinking back over all the decisions they've made in, in electing this king and all their other decisions in rejecting God in the, in the days and the weeks and the months and the years gone by. Can you imagine the guilt and the shame in that moment when they see God's divine displeasure there? It would be like a lead balloon weighing upon them this guilt and shame because they think we're doomed. We don't deserve to live. Our sin is a mile high. Guilt and shame crushing them, feeling like they should be forsaken. But they're not. Isn't that one of our culture's perhaps quietest millstones that hangs around our necks at times? This idea of guilt and shame that every one of us carry to some extent in our lives. We've all inflicted pain and trauma upon people through our selfish actions and our conscience declares that guilty verdict to us when we know we've done that. We feel a sense of guilt, we feel a sense of shame. We replay those words in our minds that we've said to somebody knowing that we've caused hurt, knowing that we've offended them, knowing we've caused that and we feel ashamed of what we've done. There's a sense of guilt, there's a sense of shame there. But here's what happens perhaps in the culture We actually become the masters of self-justification. We convince ourselves that when we've hurt somebody, and we might just feel a little pang of guilt or shame, we convince ourselves by this self-justification, they deserved it. And we try and calm our guilt or calm our shame that way. They did something to me, I just paid them back. They deserve what they got from me. And we use that to pacify our conscience. They deserve that. We try and quiet our guilt or shame like that. Sometimes guilt and shame would would ramp up in our mind for what we've done. And here's another way that we might try and deal with guilt or try and deal with shame. We just say, well, there's no point dwelling on the past. What's done is done. I'm not going back to think about it now. I'm just moving on. We try and quieten guilt and shame that way. I'm just not going to go back there. I was doing some counselling with a person a few years ago of, of a sexual nature. And this person just did not want to go back and talk about the past. I was trying to process it with this person. And they said, no, it's in the past. I'm not not dealing with it. Well, that's right. It's all going to stay there then. Not dealt with because you don't want to deal with it. But that won't make it go away. It's there. So we're a culture that carries this burden of guilt and shame. And every one of us can think of things that we're ashamed of. Things we'd wished we'd never done. 
Things we wished we'd never said. Things we wished we'd never thought. But now we have to carry this burden and bear that responsibility. This becomes here the beauty of the gospel. This is the beauty of the gospel when it comes to dealing with guilt and shame. What does God do? God provides a way forward for Israel here at this moment and he provides a way forward for us as well as we think about what's happening. God deals with our guilt and our shame and brings healing to our souls. What Samuel is pointing to in verse 22, which he doesn't know fully at this stage, is ultimately the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God who deals with our guilt and our shame once and for all. Once and for all in the perfect sacrifice that he makes. Have a look in Hebrews 9.26 where it's talking about Jesus and it says this, the second half of that verse in 9.26 says this, but as it is, he, that is Jesus, has appeared once, Jesus came once, and for all, for all those who are putting their trust and their faith in him, at the end of the ages to do what? To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And not only to put away sin, to put away our guilt and our shame and our condemnation at the very same time. This is what Samuel's pointing to in verse 22. He's the God who takes away our guilt and our shame and our condemnation. Look at the way Psalm 103 talks about what God does with our transgressions or with our sins. Have a look at what it says there. It says this, As far as the east is from the west... So far does he remove our transgressions from us. How far is the east from the west? That's not a trick question. God's actually trying to tell us something here. Well, maybe you could get in your car and you could drive west as far as you could go. You'll end up in Perth. Okay? You haven't finished going west though. Get out of the car and get in a boat and keep heading west. And keep going till you get to the end of west. Do you think that'll happen? No, you just keep heading west. You just keep heading west. Now, I could have done a demonstration everybody faced west and started doing that, but some people could have faced each other because some wouldn't know which is east and west. So I wasn't going to do that. There's no end. There's no distance between east and west because it's infinite. So what is God saying here? With your transgressions, with your sins, with your guilt, with your shame, with your condemnation... It's taken away infinitely. It's no longer yours. It's all been put onto Christ. That's how far God takes it. You can't measure. It's gone as far as the east is from the west. This is how far God has removed those transgressions and this guilt, this shame and condemnation from our lives. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is the beauty that Samuel is beginning to make aware to the Israelites again. Come back and have a look here and see also that this is God's doing in the life of Israel and not so much their doing. Look in verse 22 again. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Okay? Who's doing the making here? Who's making this people for himself? Who's doing that? It pleased the Lord to make... No, the Lord makes... It pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. This is God's doing in our hearts and our lives. He sends his spirit to come and open up our eyes to the beauty of Christ, the truth of the gospel, 
The Spirit comes and washes our hearts clean of guilt and shame and condemnation so that we stand pure and radiant in the perfection of Christ. God's work through his Spirit in our hearts, in our lives. This is God's doing. Now, yes, sure, we will still carry the scars of guilt and shame from the past. The sense of that record is gone, but we can't undo the memories that are locked up in our minds from the past. And they will come back to us, and especially Satan will use the guilt and the shame of the past to just ramp up on us our unworthiness, our worthlessness, and our piece of garbage, a piece of trash. Who do you think you are? Can't you remember what you've done in the past? Sure, Satan will do that. God really doesn't want you because you've done this, 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 this and this in the past. What do we do? We come back and we preach the gospel to ourselves again in that moment. When Satan begins to help that, heap that guilt and shame and condemnation, we preach the gospel to ourselves. We come back to 1 Samuel chapter 12 and I can see myself in that story. I'm just like the people of Israel. But then as I'm reading through, I get to verse 22 and then the light breaks in. He will not forsake his people. He's making a people for himself. My heart begins to fill with gospel joy. The Lord will not forsake me. I might fall, but I can get up again in the strength and the power that he gives. Satan may bring that guilt and that condemnation back, but I preach the gospel to myself again. I'm a new creation in Christ as we sung today. That gospel comes in and reminds me, Truly that I'm not worthy and I'm not deserving of anything in myself in Christ. In myself, I'm not worthy and deserving of anything. But it's God who makes me worthy. It's God who gives it to me freely through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that when my guilt and shame from the past again begin to ramp up in my mind, I come back and I preach Jesus to my heart. It's not about me. It's about what Christ has done once and for all, once and for all. This is the balanced view that we must have about God. As Samuel's giving it to us here today, that God is deadly serious about sin, but he's also lovingly gracious to forgive and restore us to himself. This is what Samuel is doing here, renewing and refocusing the kingdom back onto God, their true king. Let's stop for a moment and think about this. What are you doing with the guilt and shame in your life? What am I doing with the guilt and shame in my life? Will we live in denial and just pretend it never happened and just, I'm over it, I moved on? Do we, is that how we deal with it? Well, will I, will I tell myself that person deserved every word I said? That person deserved every action I uh, did against them. I've got nothing to be sorry for. Will you try and pacify your guilt and shame like that? Will you, will you just try to go on smothering your conscience and trying to, as it were, put out the fires of guilt? Or will you come to verse 22 and begin to come clean? Own up to your own brokenness. Own up to that and say, yep, that's me. That's me. Stop trying to hide behind a whole range of excuses. Putting up another smoke screen until the smoke begins to clear and then you've got to find another smoke screen again to hide behind. Come out in the open. 
That's what the Lord asked, come out into the open. Why? Because he already knows everything about you and I. He knows every experience that I've been through and you've been through. There are no secrets of God. He sees everything. He knows everything. What is he pleased to do? Jesus is pleased to make a people for himself. Jesus is not here to forsake us. He's here to pour into our lives through his life, death and resurrection, forgiveness and freedom. This is what Jesus wants to do. Are we willing to embrace that? Are we willing to come in and receive that gift from him to be set free from that guilt and that shame and that condemnation of our sins? Let me finish here with this last verse. Second last verse of this chapter that Samuel says. He says this to the people of Israel. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Why? For consider what great things he has done for you. Totally undeserved, totally unearned, but consider what great things he has done for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that we can come and open up your living, eternal, breathing word. Lord, we thank you that your word is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, discerning the thoughts and the hearts and the intentions of man. Father, we pray today as guilt and shame rises up within us from all that we've done in the past, there is only one way to deal with that, Lord, and that is through the blood of Christ, his sacrifice of the cross that takes away all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our condemnation. Help us today, Lord, I pray, to be willing, to be willing to come clean, to hide behind those smoke screens no longer, Lord, to put up those excuses no longer, Lord, to humble ourselves before you and to know that you come with welcome arms, gladly receiving us, making us new, wiping us clean, cleansing us, Lord, and calling us your very own. And Lord, today, when that guilt and shame tries to rear its head again, may we preach Christ into our own hearts and souls again to say that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Help us to get that truth today, I pray, Lord, and help us to live that truth out. Father, we ask that we pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust you have enjoyed our Bible talk from today. If you have any questions or comments from today's talk, please feel free to contact us at info at exchangechurch.org.au. Also, we love to welcome new people at Exchange Church in person, so consider yourself invited to be with us.